Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to episode 21 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries both natural and supernatural, from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery of weight loss. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So I want to take a moment at the top first to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Uh, Today, I'd like to right off the bat thank uh, Matt T, Dennis W, John S, John V, and Keith K, uh, through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. They make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at sqpn.com. Uh, and you can join them and all the other generous patrons by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, today we're talking about the mystery of weight loss, uh, which is maybe some people think that might be a funny thing for us to talk about. Uh, Well, it certainly was a mystery to me for a huge chunk of my life. And I know it is for a lot of other folks. Um, You know, the holidays are over now and we've all eaten our share of special foods to celebrate. And now people are making New Year's resolutions. And I know one of the most popular for people every year is to diet and lose weight. but a lot of the common diet strategy that people try to use doesn't work for them. And uh, losing weight can be incredibly difficult. And why we gain weight is uh, can be something of a mystery, why it's so hard to lose and why it keeps coming back. Um, all of those are things that are quite mysterious to people. But uh, based on my own experience, I thought I had something to say about them. So uh, hopefully it'll uh, be of use to people. And we should probably say right off the top, uh, the standard disclaimer that neither of us are medical professionals. We're not doctors. We're not offering medical advice. Right. Um, these are just uh, uh, observations based on uh, Jimmy's own personal experience and 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 uh, research uh, for for his own use. And we're offering these as perhaps uh, ideas. And yeah, things to maybe talk about with your doctor. Exactly. So we have to we have to say that, folks. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually good, good because you do want to talk to your doctor about these things because it's always, you know, we're always learning more, more and more about how our health works and how, uh, you know, the various aspects of our, our of our health work. Um, but so, Jimmy, you know, you said this is uh, personally important to you and some some folks who know you know you online uh, know, know that you've been um, doing very well with with weight loss uh, lately. Can mm-hmm. you tell everyone a little bit about your your background in 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 your, yeah. dealing with your weight? Yeah. So originally, when I was a child, I actually was quite thin. Um, I remember being thin when I was seven years old. But then I started to gain weight uh, during grade school and junior high. At this time, my favorite foods were full sugar Coke and uh, mustard sandwiches <laughs> with white bread. And so it was about as high carb as you could get. And I remember when I was in junior high, someone for the first time, he was kind of, you know, he's kind of a bully, but he, for the first time, someone referred to me as fat. And it 
came as kind of a shock because I didn't think of myself that way. But uh, it was something that I continued to have difficulty with. Uh, when I was um, at this time in American culture, this was like the 70s, and um, the popular diet strategy at the time was basically one that was based on calorie counting. And I remember seeing those little books at uh, the supermarket that they, that they would have by the checkout stand. And I remember seeing one that was called Count Every Calorie. And it was uh, basically a list of calories that were in different foods so people could do the calorie counting diet, which was the standard popular one at the time. And a lot of people tried it. And, you know, I tried to cut down on on calories and it didn't really work for me. Um, I did, like it didn't for a lot of people. Um, I did, though have success losing weight in college. Uh, when I was in college, I went through a period where I basically cut out breakfast. And so I wasn't eating uh, in the morning. I would have like a can of Diet Dr. Pepper, but that was it. And I lost quite a lot of weight. Um, I didn't quite get down to where I wanted to be, but I made very, very substantial progress. And I was uh, surprised when my girlfriend at the time uh, pointed out that I was thinner than another guy who I thought of as being pretty thin. And it's like, really? I look thinner than that? Um, so that was nice. Uh, then uh, I got married and um, my wife passed on and I moved to California. I had a huge amount of stress, a huge amount of life change, and I gained a huge amount of weight. And I'm not entirely sure what my peak weight was, the highest number I remember seeing on the scale was 318 pounds. And um, so that's quite a lot. Uh, I felt awful. Um, I would have done anything to lose weight. And uh, this, but I, no matter how I tried dieting, it didn't work for me. And I was using the standard diet strategies, just did not work. One day, um, I, uh, was at my doctor's and he suggested that I try the Atkins diet. And my first reaction was the Atkins diet. And I said that not because I knew what the Atkins diet was. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, my reaction was just wait a, internally was, wait a minute. The guy whose name everybody has been confusing with mine my entire <laughs> life, I have to go on his diet. Um, and so it was a purely personal reaction. But the doctor took it as uh, more of a um, more of a, a, a reaction to the content of the diet and said, yeah, you'll probably lose more weight on a high fat diet than a low fat one. And that was like the second shock because I'd never heard of a high fat diet because at this point, the whole thing was you're supposed to eat a lot of uh, carbohydrates and, and almost no fats and that's and reduce calories and exercise. And and that's the preferred strategy that uh, the government and that uh, all kinds of <clears throat> medical professionals were recommending. And I went out, I got Atkins's book and I went out and bought food. Uh, to prepare myself for the diet, um, staying away from uh, what I thought was the unhealthy stuff. And and I ended up buying a lot of stuff that was high carb because I didn't realize this is a low carb diet. So I had to throw away all the food that I, I went out and bought, hoping thinking it was healthy. Uh, but I, I used the Atkins diet, which is a low carb uh, diet, and um, and it worked. 
I was amazed. I lost. I uh, now most of this would be water weight because that's always the first thing you lose. But I lost like sixteen pounds in the first couple of weeks, mm. and uh, it then slowed down, unfortunately. Um, but overall, I managed to lose about seventy or eighty pounds, and uh, so that got me down into the lower mid two hundreds. And I ended up uh, regaining a portion of that, but I still kept most of it off. But then I got stuck on this plateau that lasted for 10 or 15 years. And I was just in a trading range where I would go up and down. Nothing I could do would break me through that trading range. Uh, And so I had a new doctor and she was recommending to me that I uh, try intermittent fasting. And at first, I very much resisted that because even in the um, even in the low carb world, but more broadly than that, there was a recommendation that's still out there of using what's called a grazing strategy. The idea is that you, you're supposed to s- snack between meals on purpose with the idea that if you do so, you will be less hungry at mealtime and will eat less at mealtime. Also, the idea is that by continuing to eat small amounts throughout the day, you're going to keep your metabolism revved up and thus burning more calories. And so I had gotten this from all of the reading about dieting that I had done. And, uh, and so I was skeptical of her claim that actually the research shows that you will do better if you eat less often, regardless of the number of calories you're eating. And eventually I did my own research and it confirmed that. And after doing enough research, I got convinced, okay, I'm going to try this. And I did. I I went to a, a system of intermittent fasting where I was basically eating one meal a day and I started losing weight and it was extremely effective. And Overall, I lost um, about 150 pounds, if I'm doing my math right, 140 to 150 pounds since my peak weight. And that got me down into like the 170s. And uh, so that's been very successful for me. And as a result of all the research I've done, um, I I think I've finally found something that – uh, has put me in charge of my weight um, that will and is basically guaranteed to break through any plateau you're on. Um, so that's uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about today. Okay. So we usually you know, frame things in, the, in the, these mysteries in terms of claims and counterclaims. Right. So the, the claim is um, the, the old dieting strategy, counting calories mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff, right? Right. So the 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 kind of claim we're working with uh, before we hit the counterclaims is that what you need to do in order to lose weight is basically eat less and move more. And specifically because fat is highly dense in terms of calories, each gram of fat has about uh, nine grams, has about nine calories, whereas each gram of carbohydrates or protein has only four. Uh, You want to eat less fat. Also, This is supposed to help with heart disease. If you eat less fat, you're going to have lower blood lipids, less cholesterol. It's going to help prevent heart attacks and so forth. So the idea is you want to eat according to the standard model, which you would see on like the food pyramid that the USDA would put out on. You see it on all kinds of products. Um, You want to eat lots of carbohydrates, not sugar, but other carbohydrates. You want to eat lots of carbohydrates. You want to eat very little fat. You want to uh, count calories and exercise. 
you want to follow these government recommendations. Basically, um, these uh, exercise is very important for this. And if you fail on this strategy, it's basically because you either have poor willpower or motivation and you didn't implement the strategy correctly. So if you fail on this, it's your fault. And these are the claims uh, for the way yeah. that this, this – I mean, this is so much of, of, of our society still built around this. I mean, you had the cal- calorie counting book in the 70s, but today there are apps where you enter in uh, like mm-hmm. uh, Runkeeper and Lose It and some of these other ones where you enter in everything you eat and it keeps track of all the calories and then balances that against how much you exercise that day based on what your watch or your phone is telling you uh, is your exercise. So I mean, this is still – this is still the the, op- the operative way that we're mo- most people are doing yeah. this. They, they, uh, they've started the nutrition industry and everything has started to back off on this a little bit, but it's still kind of the dominant model. And it's still after decades now, this really came in like in the 60s and 70s, after decades of enculturation with this, it's the default model that most people have in their heads. Eat less, move more. And, and I don't know if we're going to get into this at all with, with, with some of what you had planned to say, but. You know, uh, uh, recently some things have come out in studies and in research things and and in studying history, like things like sugar is bad for you. Uh, it's, it came out of uh, certain political realities about subsidies for farming subsidies, agricultural subsidies and and other things like that, where uh, or where fat is bad for you. And right. Fat is bad for you is related to subsidies for agriculture and so forth. Okay, right. All right. Good. So so some of the so it's what what we have to do, maybe as we as we talk about this is is I got to try to keep an open mind, understanding that some of the things I think are, well, this is just the way it is, may from what you're saying, may in fact not be necessarily the way it's always been or or it Mm -hmm. might be based on something other than actual science. Yeah. In the old days, uh, they had very different ideas about how to lose weight. Uh, basically, do not snack, do not eat sugar, and um, and um, uh, actually, surprisingly, do not exercise. Hmm. Um, rest rather than exercise was thought to be beneficial in this regard. <laughs> it's interesting. So the so what's so what is the counterclaim against the current uh, dominant model of weight loss and the dieting? Well, there are a whole bunch of different philosophies uh, about, you know, what the optimal diet is. But basically, there's a big pushback today against the standard model. And the pushback says that the popular diet strategy is is basically all wrong. It's wrong on almost every front. Uh, it doesn't work, which it seems people will say this is verified by experience. People have been trying this strategy. And instead of helping Americans, the obesity rate has exploded to where now almost half of the American adult population is obese, not just overweight, way more than half is overweight, but almost half is actually obese, which is uh, not um, not is which would be a clear sign that something is not working, even though people have been trying this strategy for uh, decades now. Um, because if you look back at mid 20th century and earlier, people just simply did not have the kind of weight problems they do now. When the obesity and uh, overweight trend really took off was in the late 70s, which was when uh, the new strategy really got rolling. And so the argument made by many people is that it's actually the strategy that's causing the problem, 
that it's not addressing the situation. It's making it worse. But anyway, um, so part of the counterclaim is the 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 majority industry strategy um, simply doesn't work. It produces minor temporary weight loss at best, but the weight will come back. And uh, furthermore, the low fat strategy, the claim is, is based on a misguided guess about heart disease because the uh, the plaque that builds up in your arteries is related to blood lipids, cholesterol, and so forth. And it was early on, it was simply guessed that, well, if you eat more fat, that should result in more fat being in your blood and that'll cause heart disease. But um, that was just a guess. They didn't have any research to support that. And they've been running with that for decades now. And so now there's a reexamination where, okay, maybe what you eat in terms of fat isn't really going to end up in your blood because it's going to get digested by your stomach and your digestive tract first. And, and it doesn't look like there's such a correlation between dietary intake of fat and blood lipids. And it looks now like the real problem is inflammation is what's producing the buildup in uh, in people's arteries, not dietary fat. So as a result of all that, um, the government has kind of backed off on the food pyramid and you don't see it on products the way you do anymore. And by the way, you mentioned the business interest. Well, OK, so guess who produces the food pyramid? It's the it's the USDA. Now, right. if you think about that, what is the USDA? Is that a medical body? Is that run by the National Institutes of Health or the Centers for Disease Control? Or who is this government agency? It's the, the USDA is the United States Department of Agriculture. So would you suspect that the United States Department of Agriculture would be serving the interests of the agriculture industry by recommending all these carbohydrates and grains and stuff like that that the agriculture industry produces. Um, it's a well-known phenomenon in um, in the government world where the people there's there's like a swapping of uh, people between <clears throat> an industry and the government agency that regulates it. Right. And in the end, um, Industry, because of various factors, including lobbying and political donations and stuff, industry tends to end up controlling its own regulators in a phenomenon known as regulatory capture. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that agribusiness has achieved regulatory capture with the USDA and then used that to promote its own interests by recommending certain eating patterns, even though the USDA is not a medical institution and does not have expertise in medicine. Um, it also, according to the counterclaim, uh, according to many, uh, is actually not important that you get exercise for weight loss. Exercise can be very important for a variety of different uh, health conditions, and it's a good idea to get exercise, but it's really not going to help you with, uh, with weight loss. The number of calories that you burn when you exercise is very small compared to what your ordinary just resting metabolism burns. Mm -hmm. And so if you really want to lose weight, you need to put about 90 or more percent of your emphasis on what you're doing with your diet. Exercise is going to contribute less than 10 percent hmm. to your efforts. And in order to make it 
have any substantial uh, impact in terms of the amount of energy you burn. You would have to exercise just for hours and hours a day. And then you would have to not eat because you got hungry as a result of all that exercise. Right, right. Uh, the final uh, bit of pushback is that um, the claim, the standard claim is just wrong. This is about poor willpower or motivation. Um, that uh, it, 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 you really should not be blaming the victim, that it's a problem more than anything else of information, that the diet strategy itself is what is causing weight gain and obesity. It is not a failure to implement it correctly. The problem is people have been trying to implement it, and it's, it's uh, causing the problem. Okay. So let's let's then now turn to looking at the evidence or what we know uh, that will either support the claim or the counterclaim. And and, you know, is, is some of it based on uh, scientific research and some of it based on your your experience that has uh, proven it out, um, which is backed up by science. Uh, so you know, why don't you why don't you walk us through some of the the the, the, the facts that you we've just kind of covered it, it at the top level so far? Well, my own to start with my own experience, um, it has uh, tended to confirm the counter critique. Um, the calorie counting thing did not work for me. Um, any weight loss I ever achieved with that was very temporary. Um, the low fat approach is based on bad science. It, it was really an attempt to um, to address heart disease rather than weight loss, and it was based on just a guess that has not been borne out by further research. Uh, my own experience, like uh, for a lot of other people, is that adding exercise does not really help you lose weight. Um, you, you, it, 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 I, I exercise a good bit, actually, but it doesn't produce additional weight loss. And if I stop exercising, it doesn't produce weight gain. Um, you can see this, like in the NFL, these giant um, you know, linemen who, you know, they they work out every day <laughs> you yeah. know, with their team, but they're giant. Uh, and it's it's because they're you know, it, the, the working out isn't causing the weight loss. It's building muscle right. that's causing them to be huge. In fact, doesn't muscle weigh more than fat? I think I remember. Yes. Once. Yeah. So muscle is denser than fat. OK. Now, obviously, when we say weight loss, that's really a code for losing fat. Uh, nobody says, or very few people would say, Ooh, I have too much muscle. I need to get rid of this muscle. Right. Um, so, so really when we talk about weight loss, we're talking about fat loss. Um, in terms of that, uh, the idea that a ca all calories are equal, and there's kind of a little bit of schizophrenia with the standard model, because on the one hand, you'll hear people who advocate it saying a calorie is a calorie is a calorie, just cut down on calories. But then they'll also say, oh, get rid of fat because it's calorie dense right. or whatever. Um, the thing is, so there are three different types of, um, of calories that we get our, our energy from. A calorie is a unit of energy. It's a unit of heat energy. And um, there are three types of what are known as macronutrients that we need to consume. Um, the opposite of a macronutrient is a micronutrient. And to understand what those are, think vitamins. They're things that we need in very small quantities, but we do need them. So like vitamin C, our bodies cannot manufacture that. It has to come from our diet, but you don't need to eat, you know, like a big handful of vitamin, pure vitamin C every day. You only need a small amount. 
the things that you do need to eat a lot of are called macronutrients. And there's basically three that we can digest for energy. They're fat, protein, and carbohydrates. And they have uh, different impacts on your body chemistry. Fat is uh, is more calorie dense than the others. It has, as I mentioned, about nine calories per gram of fat. Um, but it is something that has very little impact on your blood sugar. When you eat a fat calorie, it doesn't really spike your blood sugar. If you eat a calorie of protein, which is like uh, you know what you find in meats, and you'll your blood sugar will spike some. If you eat a carbohydrate, which your body will turn very quickly into sugar, um, your blood sugar will correspondingly spike even more. And so <clears throat> these different uh, calories have different uh, impacts on your blood sugar based on the type of macronutrient they're coming from. And the fact that not all calories are equal in terms of their metabolic impact is, for example, why diabetics have to be very careful with carbohydrates because um, diabetics have a, a problem either making or using insulin, which is the hormone that regulates your blood sugar. And so since they don't have natively good blood sugar control, they really need to watch carbohydrates frequently um, because our bodies are only designed to have a blood sugar range that's blood sugar in a fairly narrow range. And if it goes above or below that, we've got a real problem. It can lead to coma and death um, if your blood sugar gets too far out of range. For a normal healthy person, your metabolism will keep that from happening. But if you have diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, it, you're in much more dicey waters. And so um, that brings us to the role of hormones in uh, in fat regulation, because what insulin does, since its function is to regulate blood sugar, its function is to take sugar out of the blood and store it in your cells, in your fat cells specifically. So basically, whenever you release insulin, <clears throat> it will pull down your blood sugar into what should be the acceptable range and then store that sugar either in your liver or in your fat cells. And that means that when you have these insulin releases, you are no longer burning fat. You're storing fat. You've dropped out of fat burning mode and are now retaining fat. And so that's led a lot of recent research into looking at the connection between insulin and weight gain and weight loss. One of the things that maybe we should mention at this point is that there are different kinds of fat. Because um, I, when I, I know when I think of, you know, fat in the context of the discussion like this, I think of like, you know, meat fat, like the fatty mm -hmm. red meat. But there's good fats too, right? I mean, we've kind of started to talk about things like olive oil and avocados and other things that have uh, mm -hmm. saturated fats and polyunsaturated. So there are different kinds of yeah, nutritional fats, and that sometimes they, when you eat them in combination with with other types of food, they unlock some more of the nutrients and 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 have different effects. Um, there's that I think there's a tendency to silo 
certain mm-hmm. kinds of foods and to think of them in isolation from others. Yeah, there there are different types of fats, and some of them actually are quite unhealthy, especially some of the more artificial fats, um, ones that have been modified from the way they appear in nature. Um, actually, though, even though uh, a lot of people, you hear stuff about, ooh, don't eat red meat and so forth. Um, actually, there's there are a lot of uh, nutritionists who would argue that animal fat is perfectly fine. And in, in fact, it's a lot better for you than things you would find in, say, margarine. Right. which is you know, like artificially manipulated fats that butter from which comes from an animal source you know it's from cow milk um butter is actually much better for you than margarine is going to be which is typically modified vegetable fat and that that's one of the things that uh, that, are, that are tough to deal with is, is older folks especially who were told about this like there are people who still think that margarine is healthier than butter <laughs> yeah you know, you know and and in fact Margarine, you almost can't find it in stores anymore because it's so bad for you right. uh, that we found. And people were eating it like a health food for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's one I think, uh, like, like as you're saying, part of the difficulty is trying to keep up with what what science is saying today. Uh, it, the, one of the other things that kind of just as a parent of kids um, talking about like fats, my kids. So I'm I'm overweight uh, and probably clinically obese. Uh, not even just probably. I know that my, I've seen my doctor's notes. Uh, and I'm. You have been having good luck with weight loss recently, though. I, I have, and uh, although I, I, I'm going to need the strategies from this show to help me get further, because I've been calorie counting and 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 other stuff that I that uh, has turned out to plateau me. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. But my own kids, we've started them on a better strategy from their childhood. But one of the things that drives me crazy is our kids drink full fat milk, milk because it's healthier for them. It has all the nutrients yeah. and things. Um, but you go out to restaurants or other stuff and everyone wants to give them low fat milk skim milk you can't get right the the, the healthier stuff uh, and so it's 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 interesting that challenge as we're as we're thinking about this the challenges of trying to live this out in the in in their, our daily life it, it is really frustrating um i encounter something similar because i i when i'm really applying myself i try to do a low carb um, version of my diet regimen. And that means usually looking for the high fat things, because when you take fat out of something, you replace it with something else. And what they replace it with is usually carbohydrates. So if you, if you're looking for, um, for say low fat, if you're looking for cottage cheese, which is ordinarily a low carb item because it's just another dairy product. It's made from cow milk and the fat that's in it. Um, if I go to the store, it's it can be very hard at times to find ordinary cottage cheese. Everything is low fat cottage cheese, right? And, which means it's going to be higher in carbohydrates than what I'm looking for. Similarly, almost everything in the supermarket not everything, but almost everything, and especially everything that comes in a package, usually has added sugar, which is a um, which is a highly refined carbohydrate that is absolutely what I want to avoid. But almost everything has sugar in it, even if they disguise it under another label like high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. Or something like that, so they can avoid saying sugar is the. And so what some products will do is they'll use three or four different synonyms for sugar, so that they can break up the amount of sugar under three or four different headings. And <clears throat> the reason they do that 
is because if they lumped it all together and said sugar, it would be the number one ingredient. (laughs) And they don't want to say sugar is the number one ingredient. So they use three or four kinds of sugar so they can then use these other labels for it. It, Pretty much anything that ends in OSE is almost always a sugar. Dextrose, glucose, sucrose, fructose. Yep. you know, one of the things we could talk about is, uh, if we have time, is um, how to uh, shopping strategies, uh, you know, for like, I've heard of things like, you know, shop around the edges of the supermarket and right. other ways to find it. But we might not have time for that, but uh, that might be another show or something we can discuss on our Facebook page if folks want to have a discussion there. Yeah. Uh, the that, the idea I, with shop around, just briefly, the idea of shop around the edges of the supermarket is because that's where you'll find the meat and cheese and vegetables. Right. And those are the things that are lower carb. Right. Whereas everything you find in the center on the unrefrigerated shelves is um, is going to be packaged carbohydrates. Right. Right. Pretty much. Um, so uh, let's talk. You mentioned the, your low carb strategy uh, that, right. that you follow. Let's talk a little more about that. Yeah. So um, so I started doing the low carb strategy. And the basic idea here is by cutting carbohydrates out of your diet, you're not going to be spiking your blood sugar as much. You're not going to be releasing as much insulin. And so you're going to be burning fat more because you're not knocking yourself out of fat burning mode with high insulin. And um, and that worked for me for like I said, I lost 70 or 80 pounds that way. Unfortunately, it didn't continue to work. And I hit this plateau. And that's a problem. Even now, some people lose can lose weight on um, on low fat diets that can work for people Um, restricting what you eat. You restrict it enough and keep it that way long enough. You can lose weight. But eventually your body adapts to what you're giving it. Because it turns out, and this is something I remember seeing on Nova as far back as like the late 1970s, maybe. Uh, Nova, the science documentary show, had done a thing on weight loss. And even back then, they discovered that our bodies have a weight set point. It's like a thermostat. You set your thermostat for 70 degrees, and it's it's going to try to keep the temperature in your house at 70 degrees. If the temperature raises, it may kick on the air conditioning. If it lowers, it may kick on the heater. But it's trying to maintain that 70-degree reading. Um, Our bodies have something similar in terms of weight. Uh, We have a set point, and our bodies try to maintain that weight, which is why if you push to lower your weight below that, at some point, even if you don't slack off on your diet, you're likely to find yourself stalling and even drifting back towards that set point, which is why weight regain happens. And so the question is, well, what determines the set point? Because if you really want to lose weight in the long term, you need to change the set point. So what does that? And uh, recent research suggests it's your hormones. Uh, It's fundamentally hormones that determine things like uh, what your weight is, what your height is, all kinds of things like that. And actually, the height analogy is uh, particularly instructive here. One book, and we'll have it in the show notes, that is uh, very interesting on this point. It's by a, a guy named Gary Taubes, who's done a lot of research in this area, and it's called Why We Get Fat. 
And when I read this book, it's focused on the science of the subject. And when, when I read this book, it's like, this is the Necronomicon of diet books. <laughs> this is like the, the when you think about typical diet philosophy and advice, this is like the utter blasphemy against that. He's just like turning everything on its head. Um, and an example that Taubes uses in the book is he says, think about a child who's growing. When children are growing up, they're eating and that's driving, you know, that's playing a role in the fact that they're growing. But if a child just keeps eating, will he just keep growing indefinitely? And obviously the answer is no. Children reach a certain height and then they stop. So what is it that's causing the child to grow? It's not the food. It's his hormones. Uh, you, we have human growth hormone and a variety of other hormones that drive us to gain height over the course of time. And then we naturally, in order to achieve that goal, we get hungry as children and we eat. And that provides the fuel we need to meet the mandate that is being set by our hormones. So if you think then for a minute, what would happen if you deliberately underfed a child and did not allow the child to eat very much, well, is 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 that going to be a healthy situation for the child? No, it's not, because the child's hormones are demanding that the child grow in height. And if you deliberately underfed a child whose hormones are saying to gain height, then it's going to cause problems with the child's growth. The child's metabolism is going to slow down because it's thinking we're in a starvation mode. Um, it, the child is going to feel miserable and cranky and have presumably other nutrition uh, deficiencies. It would be a bad scene if you underfed a child whose hormones were saying grow in height. Well, um, Take that example and then apply it to the situation of a person whose hormones say you need to achieve a higher weight set point than you have now. Not You're not growing in height, but if your hormones say you need to be 300 pounds and you're not, and you then, and so your hormones are making you hungry to get you back to 300 pounds. And you're resisting those hormones and underfeeding yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to get miserable. It's going to cause metabolic problems. It may cause other health problems. You're going to get cranky. You're going to feel hungry all the time. It would be just like underfeeding a child whose hormones are saying you need to get to six feet tall. And so if we know that it's the hormones that are controlling the set points for height and weight, and you don't want to be 300 pounds, the thing to do is figure out how can I adjust my hormones so they're not demanding I be 300 pounds anymore. Mm. So, and mm -hmm. so you know, it, it's sort of like the example of the thin guy who can eat and eat and eat and never gain a pound and the fat guy who looks at a candy bar and gains a po five pounds. and. Because their hormones are different. We used to right. say they have different metabolism, but that's different, isn't it? Yeah, the hormones are what drive the metabolism. So the, so, the hormones are like the GPS. The mm -hmm. metabolism is the driver and the food is the gas in the car. Basically, yes. Yeah. The metabolism is the action, uh, is sort of the interaction between the two. It's okay. um, where you're actually burning the energy that's come in by the food and using it to perform work and so forth. Okay. okay. So, um, 
as a result of recent study, um, it turns out there are a couple of hormones that we've identified. There are actually a number that play a role in appetite and so forth, things like ghrelin and, and uh, leptin and so forth. But the two big hormones connected with weight gain, meaning fat gain, are insulin and, um, uh, and cortisone, uh, which is a stress hormone. Of the two, um, the uh, insulin is the more important, and that's the one that I want to focus on here. One of the things that I found when, as I mentioned, when I did uh, the low carb strategy exclusively, was I did hit that I did hit that plateau. My body set point was such that it wouldn't let me get past that plateau, and so anytime I would try. It would it would either slow down my metabolism or make me ravenously hungry or something like that to keep me at that weight. What I then uh, discovered when I uh, when I switched to intermittent fasting was that I got through that plateau very quickly and started losing weight again. The basic reason for that is this: as we mentioned, whenever you eat food, especially fat or protein, or uh, especially protein or carbohydrates, I mean, your blood level, your blood sugar level goes up. And because it has to stay in a narrow range, your body then releases insulin. And the insulin pulls the sugar out of your blood and puts it into your fat cells. So it's a fat storage hormone. And that means you're no longer losing weight when you're releasing insulin, in the at least in an elevated quantity. So um, think about what happens if you're employing a grazing strategy as I was. Well, if you're eating six to eight times a day, even if it's small amounts, you're releasing insulin six to eight times a day. And that means you're shutting off the fat burning process six to eight times a day. You're never letting yourself get back into the fat burning mode if you're eating that frequently. And so it was the grazing strategy that was keeping me on the plateau. But what happens if you lengthen the amount of time between eating sessions is you don't release that insulin as frequently and your body has a chance to burn through the calories you just ate and then it's going to tap your fat and start burning that and you'll have a period of fat burning before you eat again and have a blood sugar spike again and release insulin again. So what I ended up doing, and this is just me, other people have very different versions of intermittent fasting. Um, what I decided to do was eat one meal a day. And I'll talk at, at the end, or at least further down about um, in the show about how I adapted to that. But um, But the basic idea is, even if I eat a larger than normal meal, um, I'm still going to not eat again for 24 hours. And that means I'm going to go 24 hours without an insulin spike. And that means I'm going to have 24 hours to both burn through the calories I just ate and start burning my body fat. And it totally worked. And, um, I, I didn't just jump onto this. I, I did it in a kind of stepwise way, but, uh, it it proved very effective, and what I was really floored by is how little hunger I had. Um, as I adapted, it's like the hunger I had expected lots of hunger, and I thought maybe I won't even be able to do this. 
But no, I I, just, I didn't get hungry. I had some when I first uh, went on this, but then it went away within like a couple of days. And I called a friend of mine who fasts a lot and had for years and said, is it your experience that hunger is mostly a matter of habit? And he said, yeah. And then I talked to my my doctor and she said the same thing that with her patients who fast, hunger is mostly habit. It's not that you're hungry because you need more energy. You're hungry because just like you have times you wake up and times you go to sleep as part of your cycle, this is when you're used to being hungry. And so your body thinks, okay, food is usually available at this time of day. Let's turn on the hunger signal so we can get some of it. And if you're if you then retrain yourself over just two or three days to this is not the time to eat, your body will pick up on that message and either won't turn on the hunger signal or will say, uh, OK, maybe a little hungry, just checking. But then within 20 minutes, it goes away and and you don't have a problem. I was floored once uh, after I started this strategy. You know, I, I, I've been a chef and I like cooking and I like studying food techniques and stuff. I was at home one Saturday morning and I realized I have spent all Saturday morning watching cooking videos on YouTube, watching close-ups of food being prepared and plated and served with people talking about the smells and the tastes and everything. And I have not been hungry this whole time hmm. because I'm burning fat. And when you're burning fat, your body has a fuel source. It doesn't need to make you hungry. You know, evolutionary uh, speaking, mm -hmm. for most of human history, we have lived sort of meal to meal where eat whenever you can get enough calories, whenever there's food available, because you mm -hmm. never know when the next meal is going to come. I mean, for, and right. and for many people today, that's still you know for uh, many people in the world today, that's still the case. Um, whereas it was the case for almost everybody in the Paleolithic era when our ancestors were developing, right? Um, and even in you know medieval age times or, or, or even closer to modern times, uh, most people uh, they 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 lived closer to the closer to the edge, not necessarily mm -hmm. starving, but closer to the edge. Um, yeah. a, a bad crop away from being in serious trouble, say, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas in our modern time, we have food available 24 seven, you know, we have more food in our houses. I probably have more food in my house than a typical, you know, a, a village of a thousand people 600 mm -hmm. years ago had altogether, uh, in the winter. It, 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 so it, there's a certain amount of availability that perhaps has, um, trained us you know, to say, because our body is still, evolutionary speaking, the same eat while there's food available, but we've we've changed in our in the availability of food. It certainly is more available. Also, the types of food we have now has changed. Mm. Uh, we have way more processed food and way more carbohydrate rich foods. You just in the past, you would never have the kinds of sugar uh, in a typical person's diet that it's almost impossible to avoid having today. Mm. Even if you're buying products you don't think of as sugary ones. Um, in the past, food was, including in very recent times, just a few decades ago, food was much less pre-processed and you tended to have more, uh, more vegetables, for example, which are, they, they may have some carbohydrates, but they're also bound up with fiber 
which we can't get calories out of. And so that blunts the effects of the carbohydrates that are in vegetables. Um, and But then when you uh, is sort of uh, for example uh, there's a uh, there's a, a a documentary that I'll have a link to in the show notes called um that sugar film and it's very informative it's about the omnipresence of sugar in food and the guy who makes it uh at the beginning does an ex- not an experiment exactly but a demonstration where he makes a glass of orange juice and orange juice is is you know it's it's a process it's processed from oranges um and if you squeeze out the juice of five oranges you're going to get basically all of the sugar and carbohydrate digestible carbohydrates that are in those five oranges in one little glass of orange juice it's not even that big cuz an orange doesn't have that much juice in it um and, and just a small glass of orange juice is like eating five oranges but then if you think about what would it be like to not squeeze the juice out and to eat the five oranges, that's a very different proposition because it's got all this fiber um, that's that's going to fill you up. Um, it, you're, you're likely to stop before you get to the fifth orange um, and and not consume all of those calories simply because you're already full. Now, so, some people have said, oh, you know, fasting is and this is the old way of thinking fasting is bad for weight loss because it stops your metabolism. Your body is going to say, oh, no, we're, we're, there's not enough calories coming in. Therefore, we should hold on to everything. Yeah, and that's a very common claim. It isn't borne out uh, by the results. Um, one of the and, and I, there's an evolutionary reason for that. But um, if you think about let's think about the difference between fasting and calorie restriction. In the case of calorie restriction, um, if you're continuing to eat frequently but less, your body will think, oh, we have an ongoing food supply right now, but it's not as big as it was. So what should our reaction to that be? Maybe slow down the metabolism so we're not burning as much. Well, that's a plausible reaction for your body to mere calorie restriction without changing the timing of your eating. But now suppose. <clears throat> that you stop eating altogether for an extended period, your body is going to think, we don't have a food source right now. What should our strategy be? Should we shut down the metabolism or should we rev it up so he can go kill an antelope? <laughs> and in fact, people who fast find typically they have more energy fasting and greater mental concentration abilities when they're fasting than they do when they're well fed be precisely because your body is turning you into a hunter so you or hunter gatherer so you can go get more food this is not the time to get stingy now if you've totally burned through all of your body fat and you're and are then starting to burn uh, muscle and other essential resources, well, sure, then your body will start to slow down the metabolism just to try to survive. But as long as you have fuel reserves in the form of body fat, your body is going to say, let's go get some more food. So let's rev things up. Because that's what the fat's there in the first place. That's why it's is there in the first place. To tide you through those times so you can go get more food. Yes. People think about fasting. They hear you say, I eat one meal a day. You know, they imagine being hungry. We've talked about that. Um, 
how long, you know, what, what is, how long, like, so you eat once a day, how long could someone go and, and, and do intermittent fasting safely? What's the, the intervals that we're talking about? Over a year. I'm not kidding. Um, if you have enough body fat, you can survive on water and vitamins for over a year. I mean, mm. you still need those micronutrients coming in, but in terms of calorie energy burning, if you've got body fat, you can burn it indefinitely. And there is a case on record from back in the 1960s. There was a guy in Scotland who weighed over 400 pounds and under his doctor's supervision, he went on an absolute fast. The only things he consumed were, were basically water and vitamins. And he last he conducted that fast for and did not eat anything in terms of food for over a year. And when he came off of it, he was like 180 pounds or something like that. He was perfectly healthy. It was all great. Um, so the there's not a maximum limit determined by anything other than what's the size of the fat reserves you have. As long as you're getting your micronutrients, as long as you're getting the water you need, mm -hmm. if you've got that fuel, your body can uh, can keep you going. Uh, you don't even need carbohydrates um, in particular because what your body will do with the fat is turn it into blood sugar. Um, this is a process called um, neoglucogenesis. And so your body will make blood sugar from, uh, which is what runs your cells, from the fat. That's what you want to happen. That's what fat burning is. And um, so consequently, you don't need to eat carbohydrates to get blood, sh blood sugar. Your body will make it for you. And that's, in fact, the goal of, of weight loss. Yeah, we've often heard like, oh, you know, you can only last like maybe at the most 30 days without eating. But that's, I think, based on hunger strikes by prisoners who, by and large, are not usually 400 pounds, but are probably yeah. under underweight, underfed already to begin with. Um, yeah, it it really depends just on how much you have to burn is how long you can go with without eating. Okay. Now, um, I'm doing the one meal a day thing because that's what's convenient for me. Other people will fast for uh, other periods of time. Some people will fast for only part of a day. They will say, okay, I'm not going to eat between uh, bedtime and 4 p.m. So I'm going to do like a 16-hour um, a fast or something like that or an 18-hour fast. And then I'm going to allow myself to eat in the remaining period. What I tend to do is about a 22-hour fast, and then I'll let myself eat over a two-hour period. Other people... So my point there is you don't have to do it as strictly as I am. On the other hand, you can do it more strictly than I am. Some people will do three-day fasts. That's a common strategy. Some people will do 30-day fasts, uh, not, you know, and then eat one meal typically, but they'll periodically during the year, they'll do several 30-day fasts. And if you've built up and you to that and you know your body can handle that, that's perfectly fine. The Gospels record that Jesus did a 40-day fast. And in the old days, before I had any experience with this, I thought, how is that possible? Was that like a miracle or was it only a partial fast or something like that? And what I've subsequently learned is, at, no, 40 days is quite doable. Um, it is, you uh, I mean, it's going to be harder or easier depending on how much body fat you've already got stored, but it's quite possible for people to do that. And they've even done a lot longer than that. Right. I think there are the records of uh, medieval monks who went on Lenten fasts where they, they ate they didn't eat for Lent and that sort of thing. It was much more common. 
Yeah. And that was something else I was going to mention. The kind of fast that I'm doing, the one meal a day fast, that's basically standard monastic discipline. Now, these days, a lot of monastic orders have relaxed that. But historically, if you were a monk, you ate one meal a day, except on Sundays when you would eat two. Okay. Now, so we're... And notice, you can maintain your weight doing that because monks weren't constantly getting thinner. Right. Their one meal a day was big enough that it gave them the calories they needed for the next day. Right. And tended to not be meat, but more um, uh, vegetables and fish and that sort of stuff. Uh, of course, there's no pro- not processed foods. Right. No processed foods. You know, one of the things uh, we're, we're now getting into uh, talking about some of the faith aspects. I mean, fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines we hear about. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, be- before we hit oh, okay. the, the faith perspective, there's yep. one other thing I wanted to mention. Um, we've kind of talked about the myth of you're going to go into starvation mode and your metabolism is going to slow down. But one thing a lot of people have a, have a concern about is will fasting cause you to lose muscle mass? Will you be burning muscle? And actually we have a way to test that because when we burn protein, we have a byproduct called urea that appears in our blood. And so if someone's burning protein, they're going to have elevated urea levels in their blood. And if someone is fasting, well, they're not having protein in their diet. So the only place urea could come from would be their muscles. And the tests have been done. Guess what? You don't have notably elevated urea levels when you're fasting. And that also makes evolutionary sense, because if your body wants you to go kill an antelope while you're fasting, the last thing it wants to do is start burning your muscles. So it's going to be harder to kill an antelope. Actually, your body will preserve your muscle mass until all of the fat is gone. And it's only when all of the fat is gone that basically that you will start losing significant muscle mass. So this may be self-evident at this point, but why isn't fasting more common? Why don't more people do do this uh, practice if it's so effective? Two reasons. Big food has no interest in promoting research into fasting, and uh, they want to sell you food. That's what their business is. So big food has no interest in that, and big diet has no interest in in that because big diet wants to say you need to uh, not eat this stuff. You need to eat this other stuff instead, including our shakes and our meal replacement bars and our dietary supplements and all of these other things. It's not that you're it's not that you need to stop eating. It's that you need to eat this other thing that will promote weight loss. And so nobody makes money if you're eating less. Because that's the net effect if you don't eat as often as you eat less. And since nobody makes money if you eat less, nobody has a financial incentive to tell you to eat less. And that's the big reason why you have so much messaging, both from big food and big diet, going in the other direction. Okay. So um, we were going to mention, you know, that... Fasting as a spiritual discipline, it's often talked about in, especially in Christian circles, but other other faiths also mm-hmm. uh, do periodic fasting. Um, yep, we're coming. You know, we come up on Lent uh, in about a month or so, or a month, two months, where we are recommended to do fasting. On you know, right now we're required to, as adults, Catholics, uh, required in to fast US. in the U.S. Yeah, fast on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday, but certainly um, in the past, it has been required on all Fridays and and that sort of thing. Fasting is recommended as a as one of the spiritual disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. How how do we how do 
what what is the spiritual connection here but between this the the, the physical connection so i guess there are a couple things to say here the first one is putting the uh is putting physical discipline in its proper perspective because we've been talking about fasting as a form of physical discipline, you know, improving your health and so forth. And there's a passage in First uh, Timothy, it's First Timothy 4 verses 7 and 8, where St. Paul is writing Timothy and he kind of puts physical training in its perspective by saying to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So even though, uh, you know, losing weight and maintaining health and fostering health, that's a good thing. It's not the most important thing. It's far more important to be close to God and to have good spiritual health. Uh, this uh kind of balance is reflected in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you look at uh, the Catechism, it's paragraphs uh, 2288 and 2289. It's, uh, it says, life and physical health are precious gifts entrusted to us by God. We must take reasonable care of them, taking into account the needs of others and the common good. If morality requires respect for the life of the body, it does not make it an absolute value. It, it, meaning morality, rejects a neo-pagan notion that tends to promote the cult of the body, to sacrifice everything for its sake, to idolize physical perfection and success at sports. By its selective preference for the strong over the weak, such a conception can lead to the perversion of human relationships. And that's certainly something that uh, that people who are overweight have experienced. Uh, prejudice against people who are overweight is very strong, and studies have shown that. So where uh, if you have, uh, for example, I was reading about one study a while back, if you if uh, uh, if an employer is looking at two job applicants, and before the interview even begins, if the if the interviewer sees one of the applicants in the presence of an obese person, that applicant is less likely to get the job. That, There's even guilt by association. Right. So it's not even just that people. one of the applicants is themselves obese, but they're in the just presence seen. of. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is a very real prejudice against people who are overweight. And this is one of the things to me that um, really makes the blame the victim. You're just not doing it right. You just don't have willpower or motivation. That's incredibly cruel and incredibly false. I can tell you, when I was 318 pounds, I would have done anything to lose weight. The problem was not motivation. The problem was a lack of knowledge of what will work. Mm. And my sense is for anybody who has significant uh, weight issues and is feeling the consequences of that, they are amply motivated to lose. The The real issue is a lack of knowledge of some kind. Either they don't know what to do or they're afraid that they can't do it when really they could. Um, and it's a knowledge problem, not a motivation problem. And in the uh, uh, also maybe from firsthand experience, it's, it's, a, it's a hunger problem and not knowing what to do with that hunger, how to yeah. deal with it, how to overcome that. Um, that thinking fasting isn't going to help that fasting yeah. just makes you hungrier. 
Exactly. That's just another aspect of a knowledge problem. Right. Um, but to get back to fasting as a spiritual discipline, it is something that has been part of the Judeo-Christian tradition since before the time of Christ. You'll read about fasting in the Old Testament, and it's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, indicates that uh, we are, at, and this is not necessarily every single person because some people have medical conditions, but that we as his followers are to fast. He doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast, this is Matthew 6, 16 to 18. He says, when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. So if you're doing fasting for a spiritual reason to please God, say, you know, mourning your sins, or I want to train myself to resist temptation, if you're doing it for a spiritual reason uh, to please God, then God appreciates that, he accepts that, and he will reward you. Um, now, that then leads to a question, though, what if, you, what, if you, what if you need to fast for weight loss reasons? Does that mean it can't also be spiritual? And the answer is no, it doesn't mean that. Um, just like uh, we need to work to make a living, uh, that doesn't stop St. Paul from saying, whatever your work is, do it under the Lord. So you can still take your ordinary work that you need to do for purposes of this life and do it in a spiritual context with an eye towards pleasing God as well. And that makes it uh, not just a, a, a worldly work, but a spiritual work. And in the same way, if you need to fast for reasons of this life to lose weight or improve your health or whatever, um, th then you can still fast with an eye towards God and God, I want to please you and I want to do these things to help my body to make me a better servant of yours and so forth. And it can gain a spiritual aspect as well. So you don't have to choose between the physical and the spiritual benefits, you can do, you can do it in a way that will result in both. Okay, excellent. So um, I, I feel like we've we've really kind of dug into this on both respects mm -hmm. of faith and reason perspectives. Uh, what's our bottom line here as we we talk about then the, this mystery of weight loss? Well, the bottom line is that weight loss is a challenging thing. We do have these set weight points, and they're driven by factors i.e. our hormones, that are not part of our conscious control. We can't just choose where our set point is going to be. And that has caused it to be very difficult for many people to lose weight or keep their weight in the range they, they need it to be. And um, fortunately, intermittent fasting, regardless of the type of fast uh, that will work for you, does look like it is a very promising strategy because It'll it'll certainly punch through plateaus because if you're stuck on a plateau with intermittent fasting, you can always increase the length of the fast and you will start losing weight. Um, I wanted to finish uh, with just a word about the way I transitioned onto this because I didn't just leap into it. Uh, I was concerned about would it be uh, too big a shock to my body or would I get too hungry right off the bat and it would cause me to stop fasting. Um, so what I did was I took a stepwise approach, and you can read about this. It'll be in the show notes. You can read about this at jimmyakin.com slash fast, F-A-S-T. But what I did was I said, okay, first thing, I'm going to cut out all the snacks. I'm going to end the grazing. I'm just going to eat three meals a day. 
And I took a few days and got used to that. And then I said, I'm going to cut out breakfast because breakfast is the easiest meal of the day to skip because your body is spent all night getting ready for you to wake up and go. That's what the purpose of sleep is. Um, so it's no wonder breakfast is the easiest meal to skip. It's also the reason why the only people for whom breakfast is the most important meal of the day are breakfast food marketers. <laughs> uh, so I cut out breakfast, leaving me with lunch and dinner. And then I started moving lunch closer. Once I got used to that, I started moving lunch closer to dinner. So take lunch at one instead of at 12 and then take it at two instead of at one and then three instead of at two. Once I got lunch within a couple hours of dinner, I then cut out lunch and that left me with dinner, which is for my schedule, the one that works best for me. I you know, will frequently uh, go calling or dancing in the evening. And so when I get back, I'll have my dinner and I'll go to bed and then I'll wake up and uh, not need to eat again until the next night. So um, we, you've already mentioned some resources uh, yeah. for folks. So what are some other resources people can get? There, there's a couple of books uh, by a Canadian doctor named uh, Jason Fung. He's a nephrologist, which means he's a kidney doctor. But one of the things that diabetes does is it does a lot of damage to your kidneys. And since he's a kidney doctor, he wanted to find out how can I help these diabetic kidney patients caused him to do a lot of research that led him to the fasting world. And so one of his books is with a, a kind of a weight loss guy named Jimmy Moore. It's called The Complete Guide to Fasting. If you just want a kind of basic look at fasting and how to do it, The Complete Guide to Fasting is the one you want. If you're like me and you're a science nerd and you want to dig into the research on this in a big way, the book you want to read by Jason Fung is called The Obesity Code. He also, if you're diabetic, has a book called The Diabetes Code. Um, then there, I mentioned the book, Why We Get Fat by Gary Taubes. Um, we'll have a link to that. Also, Gary Taubes has another book called The Case Against Sugar, uh, which is very good. I mentioned, uh, the film, uh, That Sugar Film, the documentary, uh, we'll have a link to that. If you're an Amazon Prime member, it's already part of your Amazon Prime for free, so you can watch it for free. And then I'll also have a link to how the USDA recommendations have changed over time. So you can see what they were recommending back before the food pyramid and then different versions with that and what they're doing now. And it's illustrative of just how uncertain and unreliable all of those recommendations from the USDA are. And then, of course, the link to uh, your uh, yes. blog and all of your uh, various articles that you've written about your weight loss journey. So, um, great. That's awesome. Uh, I can't wait to get started for myself. Uh, I've already given up breakfast for the last few months, so that uh, hey. is my first step. So uh, we'll see how I go uh, with this. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep folks updated uh, on my journey uh, down the road. So, awesome. And best of luck. And I know your hard work has already been paying off. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I've lost about 30 pounds when I started. That, it, so. that many people <laughs> would give their eye teeth to lose 30 pounds. Yeah, yeah. And most of them, they're even losing their eye teeth would not contribute very much towards those 30 pounds. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let's talk about some uh, feedback we've been getting from folks. We get some mysterious feedback. And this time I, um, I want to uh, highlight some of the feedback we got on the episode we did on the simulation hypothesis. I have to say that probably generated more interesting uh, back and forth from folks than any of our other shows so far. Yeah. Uh, so some 
some folks asked how the simulation hypothesis, the idea, the, the question of whether if we were living in a simulation and whether that would matter uh, for us. Uh, from for a, purposes of the faith. For purposes of faith. How that would how that squares with with our faith. Um, and there's there are several different aspects of that. Could you could you address yeah. some of those? So so just as a very quick recap for people who may not have heard that episode, there's a proposal out there that we're essentially living in a computer simulation that the physical world we see around us, including our bodies, are not really made out of the particles and fields that classical physics proposes, but instead they're uh, patterns of information stored in a computer system somewhere that someone has built. And um, in the episode on this, I said, well, let's suppose that this were true. Now, I don't think this is true. I want to make that real clear. I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying this is likely to be true. My question was, if this were true, would it disprove the Christian faith? And my answer was no, it would not, because all it would mean is that our bodies are made out of something different than what current science thinks. Um, originally, for a long period of time, it, the, you had the classical four or five elements theory where everything is earth, air, fire and water. Um, and that was the majority viewpoint for a long time. Then in the early 20th century, the atomic theory of matter was finally proved. And so it's OK. Now science says our bodies are made out of atoms. Well, then very quickly, it was determined that atoms are made out of smaller particles and fields. And that's the current scientific viewpoint. Well, if it turned out that our bodies are patterns of information in another medium, that would just replace modern science. But it wouldn't otherwise uh hurt the faith because the world we see our bodies are still real it's just a question of what are they made of is it subatomic particles or is it patterns of information which frankly then would also be subatomic particles in some computer system so it would just mean a different understanding of what our bodies are and what the physical world is made of but it wouldn't challenge the faith what then happened in the feedback is people would say would introduce some additional hypothesis, and that would be the source of the problem that they were seeing. They wouldn't just stop with our bodies are just made of something different. They would then add something to the hypothesis like, well, that could mean all of the miracles we see in the Bible, including the resurrection, aren't really caused by God. They're just caused by the computer system, the, the program that's running the simulation, wouldn't that undermine the faith? And well, yeah, okay, that would if a computer program rather than God were responsible for miracles. But that's a different hypothesis. That's not simply the simulation hypothesis. That's a naturalizing version of the simulation hypothesis that, um, that says God is not involved in producing these. But it's not the simulation hypothesis that's the problem. It's the naturalizing hypothesis you've coupled with it. You can do exactly the same thing with the non-simulation hypothesis. So you say we're not living in a simulation. Our bodies are exactly what modern science says they are. But you introduce a naturalizing hypothesis that says all of the miracles of the Bible, including the resurrection of Jesus, are not caused by God, but by some natural phenomenon. Like maybe Moses saw a gas leak behind the burning bush and maybe space aliens came down and used advanced medical technology to revive Jesus. 
Well, that also is going to undermine the faith, but it's not the non-simulation hypothesis that's the problem. It's the naturalizing hypothesis you've added to it that's the problem. And so you can make either the non-simulation hypothesis or the simulation hypothesis incompatible with the faith by adding a new incompatible proposition. But if the if we return to the basic question, is the simulation hypothesis, if it were true, would that disprove the Christian faith? No, by itself, it would not. I, I can see how this might be very a fine distinction for folks. And so I encourage you to kind of if if you're still having trouble <laughs> figuring out, either to give us some more feedback, uh, you know, and and I'll give the, the the links to all the feedback places at the end of the show, or um or just even replay this bit and and slow it down and and consider each point as as Jimmy makes it, because um because I can see how it could be it could be confusing, but the, these distinctions, as always, especially philosophical and theological matters, are very important. So yeah, excellent. All right, so uh, let's move on to our mysterious headlines then. Uh, what do we have this week? Yeah, so um, I got a headline about an an eye-scanning lie detector. Now, one of the things I know we'll be talking about in future episodes is how traditional polygraph machines are unreliable. Um, they, they've got this reputation for being reliable, but they're not, which is why here in America, courts don't accept them uh, as evidence. Um in the future, we're likely to have and are even kind of beginning to have brain scanning lie detectors, which will be very, presumably reliable. Uh, but also, we now have an eye scanning lie detector uh, that uh, people have been working on. So check out the article to that. Um, there's also an article in Mysterious Headlines uh, about a NASA scientist, guy who works at NASA, who says that UFOs should be taken seriously as potentially signs of extraterrestrial contact. He's not saying that all of them are. He's not saying that most of them are. In fact, he's quite certain that most of them are not. And he views it as kind of a long shot. But maybe some of them, he says, could uh, be evidence of extraterrestrial contact. And he wants scientists to take that more seriously than they have. Uh, finally, um, since we're uh, this is the first week of 2019, a lot of times people wish they could go back in the past and, you know, have a second chance at things that maybe they got wrong. Well, good news. A new time travel solution has been announced. Uh, this will work with the laws of physics. Um, it's one of a number of solutions uh, that have been found that will allow time travel under various conditions. Um, the trouble with this one is in order for this uh, time travel device to work, it requires an object with infinite mass. Mm. So if you have an object with infinite mass and you want to go back and relive 2018 to fix your mistakes, uh, by all means, check out this article or just check it out if you're curious about how this kind of thing might work. <laughs> I've got one of those. Sometimes I feel like uh, I was say, sometimes I feel like I, I am an object of infinite mass when I'm trying to lose weight. But uh, that's a, another, a whole other uh, yeah. story. Uh, well, that's it from us, folks. Uh, so uh, we'd love to hear from you. I mean, we, we and we do hear from you uh, all the time on these. And that's great. So what do you think about the mystery of weight loss and what what Jimmy had to say about it? Uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Aikens Mysterious World Facebook page. Find this uh, show link there and leave us some feedback. Or you can just send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Uh, remember, folks, to go to like this episode on Facebook, to retweet it on Twitter, 
Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where if you do, you can hit the bell uh, to get notifications when we post a new show. And please, above all, share it with your friends and and write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that we can spread the news about the show and get more people interested in, and, and get it out there to a wider audience. That's what it's about. Uh, you can find the links uh, to the relevant to our discussion on our show notes and the links to the mysterious headlines uh, at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And then uh, until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you so much, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.